I'll invite you to take a Bible to open it to 2 Corinthians. And we're going to be in chapter 3, which if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, is on page 965. And we started a series last week in 2 Corinthians called Resilience. Uh, and part of how we framed it is as we stand today in the year 2019, um, one of the questions that Christians in every generation have to wrestle with and consider is how their faith is relevant to the circumstances and the situations that we are uh, surrounded by. And that is true for us even in this day. What does the Christian gospel have to say to a society where there's increasingly the automation of work? What does the Christian faith have to say when there's increasingly a globalization of the economy and we interact with people in ways that 100 years ago there simply wasn't even an opportunity to do so? And, and how do we live out our faith in the, the explosion of information that is available to people? And now at your fingertips, you can access more information in about 30 seconds than someone who would have had access to the greatest libraries 400 years ago. Uh, what does the Christian faith have to say to the new challenges that we are confronted with in our day and age? And so the relevancy question is always an important question, but along with that is just as much the importance of being resilient in our faith so that in every generation, for whatever questions we faith, we believe that there are universal truths in the Christian message that make it relevant to every age and every culture that exists. And part of the beauty of it being still celebrated 2,000 years later is because it can maintain both of those tensions. That there are truths that Christians have always held dear, that have always been unpopular, um, and yet when lived out beautifully by Christians, have been able to change people's minds over a long period of time. And so there is a core that defines what a Christian is that is beautiful, that is resilient over all time. And then there is always in the Christian message an impulse toward mission that makes us want to be addressing contemporary questions that we are faced with. Uh, this letter in particular, uh, in 2 Corinthians, we see Paul's resilience to a church that he planted in a city that would have been one of the last places anyone would have thought was a good place to plant a church. The church of God in Corinth was not somewhere that in any strategic meeting or church planning board they would have said, let's go for Corinth. It would have been, stay away from there as much as you can. Have not, they, they won't hear any of this, and even if they do, it'll die as fast as it starts. Like There's no reason to invest time, money, or resources for what you want to do in a place like Corinth. But Paul did. He was primarily there uh, to work. And as someone who just carried the gospel with him wherever he went, a church was planted. He wrote a letter to them, a beautiful letter that we've already studied this year in 1 Corinthians. And we uh, said last week that even though it was beautiful, it wasn't very much listened to. And Paul had to follow up on the letter with an in-person trip pretty quickly because the majority of people were not listening to what he wrote. And he had a confrontation uh, with someone in particular who was discrediting his authority and saying, we can't listen to Paul. I mean, he had a bad past. He's going through so much suffering right now. He can't really be a messenger from God. God wouldn't let someone like him go through everything he's going through if he really was a follower of his. So we can't listen to him. And Paul in person had to have a direct confrontation. Afterwards, he left and then he wrote a nasty letter. I mean, he refers to it as a, as a tough one that he wrote in tears. But then as he wrote that letter and people received it and saw how much Paul was moved by their disobedience, by their ignoring of his teaching, many of them were awakened 
and said, oh, wow, <laughs> we haven't been taking this as seriously as we should. We, maybe we should listen to what Paul is saying. And so now this, what is to us, 2 Corinthians, because it's the second one we have preserved. The letter that would have been between these two, uh, we have no uh, record of. So we don't know exactly what it said, though we know the tone of what it said. But Paul is now writing this letter to them as a resilient leader in the church of God who's wanting them to continue on in the work they're doing, to not give up, and he's not giving up on them in spite of all the difficulties they had because he loves them. And so now we're gonna read the whole of chapter three. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And that's where we'll conclude our reading today. Just so you know, if you're a planner, we're going to go through 2 Corinthians every other chapter um, to conclude it so that we have time to begin an Easter series before we celebrate specifically the death and resurrection of Christ. So we want to have in any time we study the Bible, the whole of a letter in our mind when we're looking at it. And so I'll be making a reference to chapter two as we consider chapter three, but that's just for us a part of a habit of good letter reading. If anyone wrote you a letter this past week and they sent it to you, you'd read all of it. And then you might go over some of the parts of it that um, were more impactful or meaningful to you. Even our own chapter begins with uh, referring back to something in chapter two that's important for us to know. But the theme of it, you can see, it's even titled in the Bible itself for most of us, is that we are ministers of a new covenant. And one of the questions for us to consider is what is exactly new about the new covenant? Our whole Bible is, as Christians structured this way, we refer to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament's just another word for covenant, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
And so if, if you are required to answer this in an essay question in class, okay, so what's new about the new covenant? Uh, what would you say? But for Paul, we have to be able to answer this question because it affects everything else we do as it relates to our roles and responsibilities as ministers, as servants of this new covenant to understand what distinctly is new about it. And for Paul in 1 Corinthians, he made the point and it lives on here in 2 Corinthians is what is absolutely new in this covenant is what we now know about God the Father through his son Jesus Christ dying on the cross. What is totally unique and new about this covenant is the new way in which we understand the love of God expressed through the death and resurrection of Christ. It was Jesus who said, a new commandment I give to you, a commandment that you love one another, which that part's not new. We were always told to love one another. But he says, a new commandment I give to you to love one another just as I have loved you. And he said that to his disciples on the night before he went to the cross. And so the, the newness is not the responsibility to love, but to now understand love in a completely new way because of what we see done in him. I found this a helpful description. Oftentimes when I'm deciding if I'm gonna commit to a new book, especially a thick book, uh, most books, if you read the first few pages and the, first, the last few pages, you get a sense of what the book's about when someone's trying to intro it and when someone's trying to conclude it. So this is from uh, Fleming Rutledge. She's a brilliant theologian. This is her description of Christianity in the introduction. Christianity is unique. The world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. The early Christian preaching announced the entrance of God upon the stage of history in the person of an itinerant Jewish teacher who had been ingloriously pinned up alongside two of society's castoffs to die horribly, rejected and condemned by religious and secular authorities alike, discarded onto the garbage heap of humanity, scornfully forsaken by both elites and common folk, leaving behind only a discredited, demoralized handful of scruffy disciples who had no status whatsoever in the eyes of anyone. The peculiarity of this beginning for a world-transforming faith is not sufficiently acknowledged. Too often, today's Christians are lulled into thinking of their own faith as one of the religions without realizing the central claim of Christianity is oddly irreligious to the core. I wish I could write like her. <laughs> In summary, she's saying even Christians themselves, when they think about what it is we believe, can lose sight of what is unique. That Jesus did not just bring another new teaching that now we compare and say, so how does Jesus' moral teaching compare to the Torah? Or how does it compare to Buddha? Or how does it compare to this? He didn't come and just offer another way among a whole bunch of other ways. But his coming and dying on the cross for us was to say to everyone that we all fail to measure up to whatever way we're trying to follow that none of us keeps perfectly whatever standard it is that is placed upon us by our heritage, tradition, or even internally by our own desire. Paul would say, all of us 
fall short of the glory of God. And so he came for sinners. What is unique is that he specifically came to forgive sinners. This frustrated even his closest followers. Like, why are you eating with so-and-so? Why did you ask them to be your disciples? Why did you just heal this person on the Sabbath? And one of Christ's responses, do you think I came for those who are well off and healthy? Like, a, who is it that needs a physician? Is it not the sick? But who comes for the sick? <laughs> who comes for the weak? Who comes for the sinner? For many, even in Paul's own background, they would have thought of the Messiah as finally the one who was going to come and he was going to right all the wrongs of our people. And so we're the real people of God and we want him to now act against all of our enemies. And so when Messiah comes, Messiah is going to take care of every one of our problems. And many of that being other people. And when Christ comes and says he has come to save his own people from their sins and all people from their sins, it universalizes the message. It says, wait a minute, he's come to offer a way for me to be forgiven? Yeah, because I need to be forgiven just as much as anyone needs to be forgiven for anything they maybe have done to me or other people. Well, doesn't everyone kind of need that? Yeah, everyone needs that. It's not just Jews that need that, it's Gentiles that need that. It is what we all together need need and what none of us need is someone else to show up and just say here's the new list of rules that you can break that you're going to know you don't measure up to (laughs) that's not what Christ came fundamentally to give what was new was this willingness on the part of God to send his son to die so that everyone who didn't measure up could have a way of reconciliation back to him That's new. That's unique. That he would come and offer his own life as a means of reconciliation for every one of us. Because otherwise, the idea of someone being crucified that you would then follow makes no sense at all. The whole purpose of a crucifixion was to so embarrass someone in their death. And it was so shameful to die that way that you weren't supposed to talk about them again. Like, why would you? Why would you bring it up if someone even that you knew was so embarrassingly put on display? The the whole point was that everyone would walk by and say, I never want to be that. And I never want that to happen to me. And I never want to remember that it happened to them. And Christians say, We believe that God has sent his son and he's gone through this so that we could be reconciled back to him. That the newness of this covenant is the accessibility, the availability of it for anyone who has struggled. This is the kind of love that Jesus commanded his disciples to follow after. This is what's new. It's called grace. There's a story told of C.S. Lewis being invited to a meeting of Christian theologians and they're sitting around and they're actually not able to think of or even agree on what is unique about Christianity. What does it offer to the world? And he enters into the meeting and he says, oh, that's easy, grace. (laughs) Where else is someone told that God by his own initiative does everything that's necessary to make reconciliation possible between man and himself? 
Most every other system is a, if you do all these things, maybe you can be reconciled. But who else offers to the world that all the means of reconciliation have been accomplished by God himself? And that therefore it's offered to the world as a gift to be received, not as a task to be done or earned. That's what's new in the new covenant, which the old covenant promised and anticipated, and therefore the prophecies that Jesus came to fulfill, and Paul begins to make that argument that everyone even in the old covenant knew that it was temporary because it never itself provided that solution but looked forward to someone who could solve that problem for them but it's this undeserved grace this love of sinners this reconciliation of enemies that is what's really new in the new covenant so then the question becomes well then what is essential to new covenant ministry if this is what's unique about it and what's new about it what should follow from it? And for Paul in chapter two, it's very specifically that he wants everyone in the church to forgive the very person who opposed him the most. So if your Bible's still open and you look back at chapter two, look at verse five. Uh, well, first, just so you see where I'm getting this painful letter that's between the letters, go up to verse three. Chapter two, verse three. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul is inviting the entire congregation who they know is the person that opposed him the most, that caused him the most pain in his ministry, and say, hey, if the message we're telling the world is that God loved us enough to forgive us so that we could have a restored relationship with him, how could we possibly proclaim that message credibly if we're not willing to forgive the people who've done us wrong? And so I'm pleading with you to forgive him to show love, to reaffirm your love for this person who needed to be called out publicly, who needed to be disciplined in some way. But the point of all of that was to bring about repentance that leads to reconciliation. And so Paul says, if we're gonna have credibility in announcing to the world the, the newness of the new covenant, the goodness of it, that God forgives sinners, we have to be willing to forgive. And isn't that how Christ taught us to pray? Forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who trespassed against us. If everyone comes into the kingdom through forgiveness, then everyone in the kingdom must be people willing to forgive. Must be people willing to see sinners reconciled. Because we've come to see sin in a whole new way. Because of the cross, 
and the death and resurrection of Christ, he has announced to the world that sin makes no one worthless. That's often the temptation in our own minds and heart. This is part of the phrasing from Dallas Willard. Um, We think when we sin, the temptation of Satan in our own mind is because we've sinned, we are of no worth. And the gospel announces to us, no, no, no. Sin doesn't make you worthless. It means you're lost. But your value is no less to the God who made you. And so Jesus tells a parable about a lost coin. It's of no less value just because it's lost, but someone needs to go find it. And he tells a parable of a lost son that's no less a son, no less a part of the family. But yes, not enjoying the benefit of being in the home because of pain and sin that exists. But sin in any of our lives does not make us worthless before God. It makes us lost, confused, broken, separated, yes. And so we communicate to other people when we are willing to forgive them. That even in legitimate hurt and wrong that might have been done to us or other people, that we love them as people. Though we don't love the sin that they've committed, though we don't love the way they might be living right now, but we absolutely love them. And in our love for them, we want nothing more than the possibility of reconciliation with them. That's how all of us minister this new covenant. Holding grudges does not go with proclaiming the message of the new covenant. Being unwilling to forgive does not accord with the newness of the new covenant. And then also Paul, as he writes, says to them, you, you are my letter written on your heart instead of on uh, with ink, though he's writing a letter <laughs> that's being transposed with ink to be delivered to them. He says, what I, what I care also because I see in Christ this willingness to come and redeem people. If I'm gonna be a minister of this new covenant, I have to show that I care about people. That what I want most is for this message to get into the heart and minds of people so that they live this from the spirit and not from the letter. And that's the same way. If we're gonna minister now consistent with the new covenant, Jesus looked at the beauty of the temple and the organized religion of his day when other people were impressed and he looked past it and saw the individuals who were coming and the brokenness that existed and said, God cares more about the sons and daughters all made in his image than he cares about how beautiful the architecture is or the glass or anything else. And story after story, he reiterates that he cares more about people than he does things. And if we're gonna minister consistent with that reality, we have to show that our ministry cares more about people than things. Our ministry cares more about how people are treated or affected or what the consequences are to them than whether we can brag about accomplishing these five tasks or doing these certain things. And Paul is saying to the Corinthian church that he has this relationship, that what he longs for the most is that all of this goes from the inside out. He's not bulldozing over anyone to get ministry done. He sees people not as his problem, but as his responsibility. And if we're going to effectively minister the new covenant that we have, 
we have to really consider how much we love people. How much patience we have for their problems, for their personalities, for the layers of their story, and all the complexity of what they might represent. To be honest, most of us, most of the time, don't <laughs> have a lot of patience or love for people. When, when you think, even sometimes when we use images um, in, in worship slides or any other presentation, and you want to put up a restful, peaceful image, you almost always put up an image that has no people in it. <laughs> most of us when we see a crowd of people don't start to relax <laughs> or feel better but Christ when he looked down even before he came in this world but he looked down in the city of Nineveh and Jonah was like I don't care about this place and I don't want this place to hear the good news and he said I see 120,000 people there 120,000 reasons for you to go not reasons not to go but reasons to go Paul is the same way he's doing everything he can for them as people he cares about them as husbands and wives and sons and daughters as workers and he wants that his ministry is something that ultimately transformed them from the inside out and then the last question if that's what's new about the new covenant that's what's essential to the new covenant ministry what is beautiful about the glory of the Lord he talks about it he's like there's, there's a glory that we've received that's so much better than the glory of what Moses got on the mountain when he had to put a veil over his face and no one could look at him he says to this day whenever Moses is read a veil lies over their hearts but when one turns to the Lord the veil is removed now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit everything Paul is saying is in the present tense not one day when we get to heaven we might see the glory of the Lord and then be transformed but we have the opportunity right now to behold the beauty and the glory of the Lord and be transformed into it right now well, where do we look to see it? We look to Jesus. We look to his life. We look to his teaching. We look for how he interacted with people. And we see not in this dramatic display on a mountain that Moses got of fire and lightning that was beautiful, but we see in Jesus' humility in entering the city on a donkey instead of a war horse. We see it when a woman cracks open an, uh, an, a jar of ointment and puts it on his legs and Jesus says, I want that wherever my story is told, you tell her story. Jesus, you're giving her that much credit. You're telling everyone, make sure you don't forget to tell her story. Yeah, because that's what his glory and beauty is like. Nothing is taken away from it or diminished as he points to other people and highlights who they are people that for us would be forgotten and never remembered and Jesus says I want you to remember them I want you to know what they did and that's then part of the beauty of how this book ends Rutleg is thinking of the prophecies in Jeremiah where God says that he will forgive our iniquity and he will remember our sins no more and she just reflects on the great irony. He says, 
God in his righteousness will make right all the things that have been wrong. This is the very promise of God that the former things will be obliterated and no memory of them will remain. And here is the staggering irony. All of this was accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ by crucifixion. The method that was especially designed to erase the memory of its victims as though they had never existed. Such is the power of God who raises the dead. Most of us in our humanity have at times the thought that maybe only the worst of us, the worst things we've done will be remembered and we will largely be forgotten. And the good news and the beauty of the glory of the Lord in the cross and resurrection of Christ is that we will live forever and our sins will be remembered no more. The very means by which they sought to erase him from human history is the very foundation upon which all of our history rests. And that he says to the weak, to the lost, to the hurting, to the broken, to the left out, that their names will be known and remembered. And he showed it to us while he was here on this earth so that we would believe it in our time on earth so that we would proclaim it to others. We see a beauty and a glory that he has that no one else does. And we don't have to wait till heaven to behold it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a new covenant that all that was good in the old has been made better and permanent in the new and in all the ways that we struggled and failed to live up to your perfect law that you have provided a way back that all of your lost sons and daughters could be restored to you we pray that you would help us to recognize the seriousness of our sin to not justify it or excuse it. But we also pray that you would help protect us from the lies of Satan who wants to bring us down, who wants to make us feel worthless, who wants to see us destroyed. And that you would remind us of your great love for us, how expansive and amazing and transformative it is. And then, Father, we pray that you would help us to minister to other people in a way that reflects that glory and that beauty. Help us to be forgiving people. Help us to prioritize the relationships that we have more than the things that we have so that the beauty of the glory of you can continue to live on in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.